Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. So I don't know if that's reverb or my head cold. When we when we're when we head through the book of Ephesians, we're actually not going to go like line upon line, verse upon verse, but we want to take a look at these big themes that we find in the book of Ephesians. And last week, actually for the last few weeks, we've been talking about your position in Christ. And what's really interesting about the book of Ephesians is the first three chapters have to do with your position in Christ. And then the next three have to do with your practice as a Christian, which is a really interesting thing. And I think it really separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world, that you would have a position before you have practice, that you would belong before you become anything. And we talked about how, you know, it was like um, any position that you have in this world is the result of your practice. And anything that you belong to is the result of the way you've become something. And it's the exact opposite in God's kingdom. We threw that um, slide up that said in the world that we do things in order to have things so that we can be something. We do. We work hard. Um, you know, we whatever it is that you do, I'm not sure what you do. But you do those things in order to have things, whether it be relationship or friendship, um, so that you can be uh, successful or be whatever it is or have the identity that you desire to have. And what we see in Jesus is a complete flip of that. Before Jesus ever does a thing, he's baptized and his father says over him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus has an identity before he's done anything. Jesus has an identity before he's performed. And because he has an identity, then he has confidence. And because he has confidence, he can now do what the Father's asked him to do. So Jesus flips this thing completely on its head. And this is exactly what Paul's trying to do with the Ephesians. Still happening? So, um, this week I want to talk about justification, or the doctrine of justification. And I want you to know that the position that you have 
is based on justification. The standing that you have before God is based on justification. And I'll explain what that means a little bit more. But as we go through the book of Ephesians, we'll be talking about our position in Christ. And we have the position that we have because of justification. And then we'll be talking about connection with each other because those two middle chapters of Ephesians 3 and 4 talk about walking in unity together and talk about a deep connection with one another. And I believe that the basis for that deep connection with one another is understanding our connection with the Father and that we've been justified, that we've been forgiven. And I've said this before, but Christ never calls us to forgive because someone's worth forgiving or deserves being forgiven. Christ calls us to forgive because he's forgiven us. And so we need to understand our position in him and our identity in him if we're going to step forward and connect with one another and move forward and be mobilized as a body here here at Radiant. We're also going to deal, deal with uh, reflection, how we've been uh, created to live a life worthy of the calling that God's placed on us, that we're to reflect Christ to the people around us. We'll talk about how our leadership does that in the church. We'll talk about how the family does that in the church. And lastly, we'll talk about opposition. And what do we do with opposition as Christians? And there's this progression inside the book of Ephesians that is stand, walk, war. And it sounds like an awesome heavy metal song. So it's become the theme for our uh, teaching through the book of Ephesians. Stand. Every time I, <laughs> every time you play uh, air guitar to heavy metal, there's got to be a lot of fingers, you know. Stand. It doesn't go like that when you play air guitar for other genres of music. Proverbs says that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike. They're an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked. And he who condemns the righteous are both alike. They're an abomination to the Lord. Yet Romans 4, 5 says this, God justifies the ungodly. And the question that I kept staring at this week is how can God justify us and stay just? How, I actually thought more about you and your sin. How can God justify you and remain just? Because it's easy for me. The answer to that question of how God can justify us, the ungodly, the wicked, and he himself remain just, is what we call the, the, uh, the doctrine of justification. And know today that your position as a son as a daughter, that your position, that you, you that you belong to Christ, that you are in Christ, says Ephesians over 30 times, is based on justification. It's based on what God has done for you. The issue of justification is so central to the Christian faith that it's mentioned more than 200 times throughout the New Testament. I think the most succinct summary of justification is this passage in 2 Corinthians, which 
which we could just read and 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 read again and read again. It, it's just massive, and it says, "For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God." In justification, God takes from you your sin, but then gifts you with his righteousness. It is the great exchange. God warned Abraham, we've heard this before, that the wages of sin is death. And I think a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today... um, are not only under a lot of attack, um, but they're just, they're difficult. I think they're difficult to talk about. And so we don't, which is unfortunate because the Bible does. (laughs) And I think that the problem and why we're avoiding this is really, and why these ideas of us being justified are under attack, the work of the cross really, um, is because as people, we don't really believe that we're as sinful as we really are. We don't believe that God is as holy as he really is. And we don't believe death to be a fair penalty for sin. So we make other things up. (laughs) And I see this going on. The truth of justification is that Jesus stepped up to take your penalty in your place. Jesus took your sins. He took the blow for you. There's no penalty left for you or for anyone who will accept his payment. There's no penalty left for anyone who will accept his payment. Colossians says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. You were dead and God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. We're going to get to this uh, good news inside of Ephesians chapter 2. But Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't necessarily start with good news. Ephesians chapter 2 is pretty clear about the human condition. And I'm not sure you're very clear about your condition. So I'd like to read some scripture to help you understand your need this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 is pretty straightforward. And I don't think it's necessarily difficult to comprehend. But I I really think that Ephesians 2 has some truths in it that are really hard for us to receive. Romans says that we would be prone to suppress the truth. And I fear that um, as I look at Jesus' life, I look at the people that were around him, 
And I think that the people that were best at this were the religious professionals. And I fear for, for myself, and I, and I fear for you if you've heard this story before. In fact, if, you're, if you've never heard what I'm about to read to you out of Ephesians chapter 2, I'm jealous. Because we can assume at times that we, we know how this story ends. I think that the religious professionals were good at suppressing the truth because they knew the most. They knew the most about God, so they had to suppress the most. As Christians, we're called to love the truth. We're called to walk in the truth. We're called to believe the truth. We're called to rejoice in the truth. And we're called to speak the truth in love. I think a lot of us maybe have understood that to be to withhold the truth in love. And I don't know why this is so difficult, but do you, do you sense, do you understand in yourself um, your proclivity to suppress the truth, your resistance to the truth? I don't know why this is, but it is so difficult for me to apologize to acknowledge the truth and to take responsibility for it. This is how it goes with my wife. Is my wife in here? Mm. This is how it goes with my wife. And maybe you're, you're the same way. Uh, the truth is difficult at times to acknowledge. But just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not accurate. But anyways... About earlier, when you know that I, about what went on, you know, what were, earlier when I was, you know, anyway, I'm sorry. About, you know, that, it just was dumb. It was just, I'm sorry. You know, this is the way that this goes. I have no idea why it's so difficult to take responsibility We live in a culture of blame. We really do. Really good at it. Taking responsibility for your actions is pretty rare. We live in a culture of uh, victims. We say things like, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. That's not my heart. That's the best one. When someone comes to you and says, I'm hurt. Well, that, that wasn't my heart. That's not what I meant. I want you guys, I, I desperately want you to receive the truth this morning. And I think sometimes it can be really hard work to receive the truth. In Jesus, I, I was I was thinking about this as it was it was a long it was a it was a long night. Uh, we took a bus down to Los Angeles and got back pretty late. And when we did get back, I started thinking about um, you know anthropology and who is man, and so on cold medicine and a rock star. So this could get weird. 
But I want to talk today a little bit about how truth and grace are inseparable. Because I've, I've felt at times like there's a paradox between these two things. That they stand at odds with one another. The grace of God and the truth of God. And I've even found myself uh, torn in conversation with people. I brought this up a few months ago, but I was in conversation with someone who was telling me he was getting a divorce and his kids were fine. And he kept saying it over and over again to try to justify what was going on, you know? And, uh, and I didn't know what to do. I knew he was tore up. And I didn't know, I, I, I honestly felt a little bit torn between what I believed to sometimes feel like a paradox between grace and truth. Well, this guy needs grace. He's grace-starved. He needs unmerited favor from God. But he also needs the truth. And which one do I give him here? Do I just nod my head and go, yeah, your kids will probably be fine. <laughs> or do I go, no, 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 man. Quit telling yourself that. You're kidding yourself. There's a lot that would suggest otherwise. And I sometimes feel torn. Do I give him grace do I give him the truth? And we're going to talk about the grace of God towards us. And what I want you to understand is that grace is not avoidance. Grace is assistance. Grace is not avoidance. And there are some things that we need in order to receive his grace. I love... Uh, this is why I love Jesus. Came from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Not half truth, not half grace, but full of grace and full of truth. Grace, which we're going to read about, is an unmerited divine assistance given humans for their regeneration or sanctification. Unmerited divine assistance given humans for their regeneration or sanctification. So hearing that definition, let me ask you, why do you think that grace needs truth? It requires a few things from us. I don't want to say requires. I, I'm not sure I could use that word in regards to grace. But it definitely assumes a few things. I think it assumes that we embrace a pretty difficult truth. Unmerited divine assistance given humans for their regeneration or sanctification. What are the assumptions built into this definition of grace? Yeah. That we acknowledge a need for assistance. How, how easy is that for you? Probably not very. I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. I think that we need to embrace the reality of our situation. And grace also suggests that people are fallen and in need of regeneration. 
How fun is that truth to tell? I think that human depravity is one of the most difficult truths to tell. It's really tough to interrupt a conversation about how somebody has a good heart. Oh, he's a good guy. He's got a good heart. You don't know him. And I want to think to myself, I'm not going to interrupt this with the truth of Scripture that says that his heart is desperately wicked. I find that that truth sometimes is really difficult to give, this one of human depravity. But it's the very one that needs to be embraced in order to receive grace. The reality of your situation. Coming to terms with our need for a Savior, not easy. But once you grasp it, it's pretty liberating. Coming to terms with human depravity, pretty difficult. But once you embrace it, pretty liberating. And I think in order for the world to come and experience God's grace, it's got to come to terms with some, with some difficult truths. And there's something that precedes salvation, because Ephesians 2 is going to be, it really is about God's intervention. It's about salvation. But what precedes that is conviction. And I'm scared for the church because I feel like we've stopped talking about the things that bring conviction but we're still hoping to have transformation and salvation inside of our churches. And uh, one precedes the other. Without conviction, there will be no conversion. This book's pretty convicting. And sometimes we can prance around the stuff. And without conviction, there'll be no conversion. And I fear for the church uh, if it lets go of some of these things that it needs to hold to. There'll be no conversion. There'll be no salvation. So let's hop into uh, Ephesians real quick. The first verse... of chapter 2 says, and you. We'll stop there. You. And you. And it'll go on in verse 3 to say, all of you. You. Not them. And this is where it can get really tempting to suppress the truth. You. <laughs> You are the problem. We're the problem. I'm the problem. It can get really tempting right now to suppress the truth. You. And I think deep down, we know that we're the problem. Deep down, we know this. That's why... You lock your doors.
Here's the story that the Bible paints for us is that there's a great God who created us. A great God who created us in his image. And he created us to enjoy relationship with him and to enjoy relationship with others. Live forever. You know the picture. You've seen it before. Naked, fruit, good marriage, the whole bit. And yet we look around at the world that we live in and we experience nothing like that. We don't live forever. We die. Not healthy. We're sick. We don't tell the truth. We don't tell the truth. We have contracts and lawyers and courts to decide the truth. We don't typically love each other. We use each other, abuse each other, and then abandon each other. And because we're made in the image of God, we've got this deep sense inside of us that this is not how it's supposed to be. Something deep inside of us that says this is not how it's supposed to be. And so we start devising programs. We start raising money and we start developing social systems to meet the needs we see around us. And we say things like this. Well, what we need is more. What is it for you? What we need is more education. What we need is more police officers. What we need is more military. What we need are more jails, actually and more consequences for the people that act out. What we need is more law. What we need is more medicine. And what's really interesting to me is that it seems like the more we spend and the more we evolve, we don't seem to get any better. The more we spend and the more we so-called evolve as human beings, we don't seem to get any better. And I started to ask myself this question, if the, why is the world so bad if everyone wants it to be better and we're spending lots of money? Why is the world so bad in such a mess if everybody wants it to be better and everybody's working towards that end? Lots of people trying really hard and we don't seem to be making any progress. I started to think about as I was driving over here that there's this tendency when to not receive this this first part of Ephesians chapter 2 that says and you and it, it becomes really easy to think them and so there are hundreds of churches gathered today that think that the problem is them and then there are thousands of people that aren't gathered in church this morning that think that you are the problem. Your religion has brought on more wars than anything else. You have given us the crusades. 
your politicians are trying to legislate morality. And so what happens within this, when we don't take responsibility for our own stuff, is we tend to think and them. And everybody outside thinks it's us, and everybody inside thinks it's them. Don't suppress the truth. You are the problem. And you are the problem. The other thing that's going on is that the world's telling us something else in regards to who you are. The world's telling you something else in regards to who you are. That you're not the problem, you're the answer. I want to take a look at some passages because I want to talk about the essence of man. I want to talk about the moral state of man and the need of man. Scripture says that you're dualistic in your essence. Is that passage up there from Galatians? Is there one up there from Galatians? Yeah. This is a great picture of the dualism that the Scripture says that you are. That you're both a physical man, but you're also made up of supernatural components. That you have a spirit. So I say live by the Spirit. In regards to your moral state, Scripture says that you actually have three states. You can be in one of three states. And this is a little bit like a stop, like a a wristwatch. You know how there's different modes you can put your wristwatch in. There are different modes, different states that you can be in. The first, when we were created, we know that we were created innocent. Can we put that passage up from Genesis? Thanks, I can't see anything. And then after we were created in Adam, there was another significant event that we've talked about. There was a fall. And so I want to talk to you about the second state that you can live in, and that is fallen. A fallen state. Can we read that passage out of Romans, Brent? Sorry, do I keep saying what you're doing? And just, yeah, sorry about that. I'll trust you, Brent. It's not part of my fallen nature, but I'll do it. (laughs) That in the event that we sin, we move into a fallen state. And listen to the way that the Bible talks about your fallen state and how you're described in this mode.
Then there's a third mode. And that is redeemed. There is a redeemed state. And would you read the description of your identity and what defines you as the redeemed? What's interesting about this is when we fall, we still bear the image of God. And when we move from that fallen state, accept the work of Christ in our lives, we take from that fallen state into that place of being redeemed our sin nature. So in his essence, scripture says that you're made in the image of God. You're comprised of both natural and supernatural elements. In your moral state, scripture says that you're fallen. And your need is for redemption. The world's view of man is a little bit different than this. The essence of man in a worldview is that you're monistic, which is a humanistic, naturalistic view of a man that man is simply material. He's made of one substance and has no spiritual dimension. Man was not created, but evolved and is the product of chance. Can we read that quote from Paul Kurtz, I believe it is? Will somebody read it aloud since I can't? In the world's view of man... In the world's view of man, your moral state is basically good. Can we throw up the quotes from Sagan and Abraham Maslow? Somebody read aloud? Next quote. That was it. So this is what's really interesting is when your moral state is basically good. You aren't fallen, and you aren't in need of a savior, but your basic, that your moral state is good, and that what you need is to actually self-actualize. What you actually need is to let your inner man out. 
the very inner man I'm trying to put to death. We need to let out of the cage, I guess. And careful study of this man is going to lead to better societies. Abraham Maslow was the psychologist that developed the theory of the hierarchy of human needs. And it's a pyramid-shaped structure that illustrates that human needs... uh, I'm sorry, it's a pyramid-shaped structure that illustrates human needs. And the greatest need is for a human to self-actualize. That's your greatest need in life. So understand you're getting fed two pretty different ideas about who you are and what you need. Let's keep going in Ephesians. And you, depending on your worldview, I guess, You know where these guys think evil comes from? This is really cool. They say that sick cultures make sick people. So there's nothing inherently evil about us. It comes from the outside. What's really interesting to me is I thought that people made up cultures. I I don't know. I, I guess, I don't know, maybe. I guess I'm wondering where the sick culture comes from. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. That's a great word. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. Not only were you unworthy, but you were incapable. Don't mix up justification with sanctification. Sanctification, you're a part of. Justification, you're not. You're dead. It is by grace alone, because you're dead. You can't participate in it. What, what a radical thing to stay here. And you were dead, why? Because of trespasses and sins. You were dead because of trespasses and sins. I love this because trespasses and sins covers two areas. Sins of commission and sins of omission. And I would so much rather pastor a church of people who, have, who were committing sins It's so much easier. The evidence is out, and you're ready to repent. People who don't think they struggle with sin or struggle with the sin of omission, what they don't do, because what you don't do can be sin. Did you know that? Not just what you do do, what you don't do can be sin. In fact, you're worse off. You really are. Because people who commit the sin of omission say things like this. Well, I'm not going to apologize. I didn't do anything. And I want to say, that's exactly why you need to apologize. You haven't done anything. You haven't done anything for two years. You never do anything. You never stand up. I'm not going to apologize. I don't do anything. I know. You should apologize. You are a waste of space. Well, at least I don't do these things. And I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this. What do you do? I don't know, but I don't do this. Yeah, you're the worst. 
<laughs> the people that do do things are seeking Jesus. You're full of self-righteousness and really far off. This will get good, I promise. You're like, I could have stayed home and had my wife yell at me. <laughs> told, <laughs> told me things to do around the house. This is rough. You were dead in trespasses and, and sins. Sins of commission and sins of omission. You're guilty of both. And you previously walked according, in which you previously walked according to the worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And by nature we were children under wrath. As I read this this week, I started thinking to myself, okay, so he talks about these three areas. He talks about Satan, the ruler of the atmospheric domain. He talks about the world, and then he talks about those children that are disobedient. And I was thinking to myself, I would love to be in the front row when God pours out his wrath on Satan. I would love to see that go down. <laughs> and, 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 and for that matter, I'd love to see him pour it out on this world. I can't stand this place sometimes. Other times I think I can tolerate being here. Sometimes I just don't want to be here. And when I look at it and look at its brokenness and look at the sickness, I think to myself, come, come quickly. But then what exposed my self-righteousness is I was not excited about him pouring his wrath out on the disobedient. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be in the front row. I want to be really, really far away from that. God, how could you? I think I just want to say something really quickly, which is really difficult to comprehend. Your sin is first and foremost against God. It's not as horizontal as you think. First and foremost, your sin is against God. You have sinned against God. David knew this. For you and you alone, I've sinned. I think a lot of times when we think about sin, we think about our horizontal relationships. We don't understand that God takes this personally, that you've actually sinned against God. And hear me out that if you stay in this state, remember we talked about the modes in a watch, if you stay in this mode of being fallen, and you don't embrace the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and you pass from this life to the next. You will be the object of God's righteous judgment. You'll be the object of his wrath. Sin must be paid for. He wasn't kidding when he said it, that if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. It's not up for discussion. Just because we don't like that or think that that's a severe consequence for sin. It's what it is. And it has to be paid for. Jesus Christ can pay for it. You can accept his sacrifice by grace through faith. Or you can pay for it.
And you don't want to do that. God punishing human beings according to their sins is growing increasingly unpopular. It's overshadowed by accepting people the way they are, forgiving what they do, and forgetting evil. Forgetting what they've done and forgetting the pain they've caused. (laughs) What's interesting about this is because I started to think about the cross from the perspective of a sinner. And when I sin against someone, when I sin against you, which I probably will, when I do that, I want them to accept me. I want them to forgive me. I want them to let me off the hook. I want them to understand my heart. Because that's what sinners want. That's what sinners want. And as long as we view the cross only from the perspective of sinners, this is all we'll see. As long as we view the cross from the place of sinners, this is all we'll see. But when someone we love sins against us, we cry out for justice. When we're sinned against, We cry out for justice. Because that's what victims want. They want justice. An amazing example of this is um, my, my car horn. A lot of times, you know, what's gone on has already gone on. You know, I'm not using my horn to warn them that they shouldn't change lanes. I want justice. I want them to know that there was no room in that lane for them. (laughs) Sometimes this is hilarious. I feel like I can't stop myself. I want justice. I want justice. When we sin against someone, come on, dude, seriously? Just let it go. It's not that tough. Water under the bridge, man. Let's go on. When we're sinned against, how easy is it to wear that? I feel like I can't stop myself. Like if someone does something, Tiff will be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I am staring him down. I am. I'm throwing him the nastiest look. I want justice. I had been waiting for that spot, and he pulled into that spot. And now I'm going to drive two miles an hour, hanging out the window, staring him down. Or we're just going to sound off on the horn. Just to let you know I want justice. Just to let you know you're in the wrong. I need to let you know. And I know it's not an easy thing to reconcile God's love with his wrath. I know that that's not an easy thing to comprehend. 
But I think you need to understand that your sin hurts God and hurts the people around you. And that God's very serious about your sin. In the cross, we see that God's very serious about loving us. We also see that he's very serious about sin. There's no joke here. No big deal. Water under the bridge, man. It's personal to him. Your sin is personal to him. And I think it's personal because he's loving. It's personal to God precisely because he's loving. It's personal to him because he cares about you and because he cares about the people you're around. If he wasn't, he wouldn't care. And he cares deeply about your sin. And it's because he's loving, not unloving. And this is an amazing reality when we embrace it. Your depravity is pretty liberating when we embrace it. Because here's where it gets good. But God. But God, who is abundant in mercy, hear these words we love. These words that we love and don't mean anything if you don't understand your guilt. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. By grace, unmerited favor, you're saved. And he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For, God, for by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not from works, so that anyone can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Listen, the good works are a part of it. You are not saved by good works, but you most definitely are saved for good works. Ephesians ends by saying that you're his workmanship. And from that same word, we derive the word poem. You're his art. You're something he's writing. You're his poem. And he's got something he wants to put down. There's a fantastic example inside of John chapter 8 about how Jesus walks in both grace and truth. And I'd like you to read it. It's about the woman at the well. You've probably read it before. But when Jesus comes to her, he doesn't deny her need for assistance. He speaks the truth to her. 
but he also extends grace to her, forgives her, sends her away cleansed. Without the grace of God, because I feel like there are probably some here that are, that are really bent towards grace. The gracies, we'll call you. Without truth, you'll end up in compromise. And there's truthies in here too, right? You are hell-bent on the truth. Without grace, without keeping it in proper tension with grace, you're going to end up in self-righteousness and a crushing legalism. And there is a tension between grace and truth. And Jesus is that tension. And the cross is that intersection. Without grace, the world's going to see no hope for salvation. And without the truth, they're going to see no need for salvation. There'll be no need for salvation. There has to come a conviction before there's conversion. And so I just want to ask this morning, um, if there's anybody that wants to receive Jesus, I want to ask if, if you're here and you've never made this great exchange, your sins for his righteousness, by grace, you're incapable through faith, simply trusting Jesus, trusting the work of the cross. And I'd like to invite you, there's no, uh, I don't think we should bow heads and I don't think we should close our eyes because this is really exciting. <laughs> And you wouldn't want to miss this. This is just not, it's not embarrassing. It's actually really, really exciting. So you do not want to pass in a fallen state from this life to the other. You want redemption. And you can't find that through what you can do. You can only find that through the person and the work of Jesus Christ in your life. And so if you want salvation this morning, not try to pressure anybody, but there's something stirring in you where you want to trade your sin, your unrighteousness. You realize this morning you're the problem. You've been blaming others. You've been blaming your parents. You've blamed, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what exactly is you've defaulted to, but if you want to receive him, I'd like to invite you to stand. Let's pray. We thank you, God, that we were the objects of your wrath. And now you've redeemed us. And we thank you, Jesus, for uh, just recognize that we are dead in sin. We recognize our need for assistance. And I thank you for your grace that doesn't avoid what's going on in our lives but empowers us. We put our faith in you this morning, Jesus, in your work. And we worship you because I just don't see anybody who, who walked that line of being full of grace and full of truth quite like you did. And people were so drawn to you because of it. We worship you this morning.
Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. Divide.